A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Ah, they're not bad people, as you'll soon find out. Just people willing to question the narrative, willing to think clearly and independently during times of crisis, willing to see the world as it is, and to use their their uh, influence as wisely as they possibly can to uh, help shape the world around them. Glad you could be a part of our audience. Our program is brought to you by HSLAmmo.com, also pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Got a lot of great stuff to cover today, so let's dive right in. I got to tell you, I have the deepest respect for people who can take complicated topics and distill them down to the basic principles at stake. In other words, people who can take things that, uh, that others are paid very well to keep complicated in order to keep as many people as possible in the dark, you know, to, to make sure that, well, you know, you have to turn to me if you want answers for this. By the way, government is probably the best at this of, of any institution that I know of. But, yeah, it happens. Still, I love the people who can look at a very complicated situation and say, okay, think of it this way. And it makes sense. It's not that they're dumbing it down. It's just that they're putting it into terms that more of us can easily understand. Because let's face it, I need all the help I can get. Well, Donald Boudreaux writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous analogy of how the modern economy works. And I know, you probably have, you probably discuss this around the dinner table with family and friends all the time. Oh, yes, right, we were just talking about marginal utility. You know, it's a wonderful thing. No, he has a, a terrific analogy. And I want to share this with you. It's an article titled, If I Could Paint. But listen to what he's describing here. He says, if I possessed even modest talent at painting, I'd paint a picture to convey some sense of the modern economy's inconceivable complexity, dynamism, and vastness. He says, as I imagine it, my picture would give the viewer the impression of looking at the ocean, or the surface of the ocean at eye level, which uh, that which is above the surface would be visible to anyone. But that which is below the surface would be invisible to all but the privileged viewer of the picture. So above the surface teems a cornucopia of goods and services, goods and services, the existence of which is made possible only by what is beneath the surface. Now the goods and services above the surface, available in abundance for ordinary people to consume, are all connected in intricate ways to the materials, machines, efforts, and processes, financial and real, that are taking place beneath the surface. And although the quantity of goods and services above the surface is immense, its size is minuscule compared to the colossal amount of economic inputs and activities going on beneath the surface. surface. Inputs and activities including creative entrepreneurship and risk-taking and on-the-spot problem-solving, connected in in an unfathomable number of uh, combinations to each other and also to the goods and services above the surface. He says this web of connections is so complex as to be inconceivable to the human mind. Donald Boudreaux writes, The human eye can very easily see that which in reality is, so to speak, above the economy's surface. 
in plain sight are the huge amounts of food, drink, and other household goods that are always available in every supermarket throughout the modern world. The automobiles whizzing along, boulevards and autobahns, the seemingly endless menu of choices at retailers such as Amazon and Walmart, the army of oncologists, cardiologists, neurologists, podiatrists, obstetricians, pediatricians, gastroenterologists, pediatric gastroenterologists, and other medical specialists, the blogs, books, movies, streaming music, movies on demand, guided tours, and sports league television networks to entertain or challenge your mind, the jetliners that carry you away for holidays or from or home from job assignments, the high and rising life expectancy, the infants not dying or their mothers, the parents not grieving, the artificially cooled indoor air during the summer and artificially heated indoor air during the winter, the new app for smartphones, smartphones, goods and services galore, from the gaudy to the glorious in each and every one of them, the fruit of this inconceivably complex and spontaneously ordered web of economic relationships and processes, a mix of peaceful cooperation and competition that works so silently and so invisibly that almost no one knows of its existence. Now, I want to pause for just a minute and and just ask you to get your mind around this. And by the way, there's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Please check it out because you might even want to reread that paragraph a time or two just to get a glimpse of the vast number of things that are taking place out of sight and for most of us out of mind in order for us to go about our busy lives and to be productive and enjoy all the creature comforts that we've become accustomed to. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, in contrast, the human eye cannot see the full extent of the productive processes that make this cornucopia a reality. Indeed, this massive below-the-surface market activity is easy to deny or trivialize. And it's therefore tempting for those who are unhappy with what they see on the surface to demand that the surface phenomena be rearranged to be more pleasing to the unhappy complainer's eyes. But he says these unhappy complainers don't realize that to knowingly meddle with that which is on the surface is to unknowingly meddle with far more. It's to unknowingly yank on an uncountably large number of cords by which the surface phenomena are connected to the Everest of market processes beneath the surface. Meddling with the surface phenomena causes many of these unseen cords to pull, twist, and rearrange in unpredictable ways many beneath the surface economic arrangements and processes. Among the simplest examples of such unseen pulling, twisting, and rearranging would say involve raising tariffs on imported steel in order to protect the jobs of today's steel workers or to better ensure supplies of a critical military input. Seems simple. And indeed, it's likely that such tariffs work, at least for a time, to ensure that more steel is produced domestically and hence to protect some steelworker jobs that would otherwise be made redundant by imports. But he says, look beneath the surface. The higher tariffs on steel artificially raise the cost to other domestic producers of supplying the likes of precision tools or automobiles or home appliances and office buildings. These producers of goods made with metal react with some combination of reduced outputs, lowered quality, greater use of aluminum, or other substitutes for steel. And then buyers pay a higher price for these goods, thus generally leaving them less to spend to buy other goods and services like health care and restaurant meals, nights out at movie theaters, vacations to Disney World. See, employment in these other industries falls, thus offsetting any tariff-engendered gains in the employment of steelworkers. 
There's that which is seen. There's that which is not seen. Which, by the way, is an excellent essay from Frederick Bastiat, author of The Law. Donald Boudreau says the unseen consequences continue, so as more aluminum is used domestically to produce, say, home appliances, the price of aluminum rises. The cost of supplying some military hardware thus also rises, both because of the higher prices of steel and because of the higher prices of aluminum. The defense budget grows, causing either taxes to rise today or, through debt issuance today, taxes to rise tomorrow. The need to pay these higher taxes reduces consumer spending and business investment in ways unforeseeable, thus causing contractions in the size of some industries. And as these industries contract, they employ fewer and fewer workers and fewer in- they buy fewer inputs from suppliers. Yet because the consequences of tariffs play out over large numbers of economic relationships in space and time, no one can trace their details. He says, we know chiefly through economic theory that these consequences are real and generally worse than what would prevail absent any tariffs. But out of sight, out of mind. If the surface economic phenomena can be manhandled in ways that give it a better appearance to those who mistake the surface for the entire economy, well, then that's that. The manhandling of surface phenomena is mistakenly thought to work. And so you hear the protectionist boasting, see, the steel tariffs ensure we produce more steel. And the economist is left to verbally insist, quite correctly, that this visible success comes at too hefty a price paid in the form of invisible distortions now infecting the vast subsurface web of market processes. Now, Donald Boudreau says, Oh, I wish, how I wish that I had artistic talent enough to paint such a picture. How I wish that I could make more visible, literally visible to the eye, the economy's teeming, streaming, pulsing, gargantuan, yet almost completely invisible and silent interconnectedness and complexity. He says the person who paints such a picture would provide a great service to mankind. Okay, well, he's painted the picture mentally. And that's something worth considering right there. But the bottom line is, all these things that you and I take for granted are things that uh, others, you know, particularly people in power seem prone to meddle with and to play with and to tweak and to mess around with thinking that, well, it's only going to have the desired effect that I want. That's the measure of good economists. That's a measure of good thinkers. They don't just look at what's seen. They try to consider what is unseen and how it might have unintended consequences. Good stuff. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't taken the time to do it yet, could I please ask this small favor? Go to my website. It's very simple, thebrianhydeshow.com. Brian is spelled with a Y. Hyde is spelled with a Y. And please subscribe to this podcast. It's a simple click. Just go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Down at the bottom, you've got a subscribe link. There's also another link there, and I would ask you to just hesitate for one moment. Think about if if what you hear and what you gain, what you have uh, reading-wise through through this program, if the content that I'm putting out there is providing some value or some insight for you, I would ask you to help me do what I do. And, and by that, I mean help me stay focused on what I'm doing rather than thinking about, okay, do I need to go grab a part-time job at the gas station in order to, uh, to keep doing what I'm doing? 
$5 a month, $10 a month, a buck a month. You can become a patron. You can become a supporter, a monthly subscriber. It's very simple. And I thank you in advance if, if you consider becoming one of my, my growing number of supporters. So exercising your free speech should be simple enough, right? Just say what's on your mind, and if somebody doesn't like it, well, too bad. Free speech, <laughs> bucko. Unfortunately, in our highly litigious society, defamation lawsuits are becoming a common tool to silence people who speak things that um, people in power don't really want to be spoken. In fact, it's become a common tactic of government employees who are using what we call lawfare, the legal system, weaponized against people who publicly complain against them. Got a great article here from Ryan McMacken explaining how defamation lawsuits are used to stifle free speech. And I have to admit, this is kind of chilling. He says the average American can be forgiven for assuming that he or she can freely criticize the government and government personnel without fear of being sued by the government for libel or slander. Now, this is indeed true most of the time, but it doesn't mean that government agents with hurt feelings won't sometimes try suing private citizens who have the temerity to criticize how government bureaucrats do their jobs. In fact, this was the case earlier this spring when a Louisville Metro police officer named Corey Evans filed a lawsuit against the DUI guy. That's an attorney named Larry Foreman who has a YouTube channel and he sued him for defamation after Foreman accused Evans of planting evidence. This is from Louisville's WDRB reporting Foreman posted body camera footage to his YouTube channel from a 2018 incident where the Louisville Metro PD officer Corey Evans searched a man's vehicle following a suspected DUI. Now, the video depicts Officer Evans and another unidentified officer searching the vehicle for alcohol. Evans looks in the center console without finding anything, but the video jumps forward to the view of the other officer who opens the console and finds a bottle of liquor minutes later. Now, Ryan McMacken says, look, I don't quite agree with, uh, I don't, while I don't agree with Foreman when he concludes, the video speaks for itself, he does say Foreman's conclusion is nonetheless quite plausible. In other words, the body cam footage makes it easy to see how Foreman could sincerely believe that Officer Evans did indeed plant the evidence. That is, Foreman may have simply been stating what he believed to be the truth. Now Evans' attorney claims the accusation has hurt the reputation of the LMPD officer and the suit is seeking damages. Ryan McMacken says, let's hope that Evans loses and loses big. See, the problem of a police officer suing a community member for an accusation of abuse helps illustrate one of the central problems with defamation lawsuits. They can be used by powerful people to silence critics. Now, in the United States, we're fortunate that it's quite difficult to win a defamation lawsuit. Generally speaking, in American courts, plaintiffs claiming damages from defamation must prove actual harm as well as intent to harm. And the plaintiff must also prove that defamatory comments are false. So the difficulty of winning a defamation lawsuit under such circumstances helps discourage countless defamation lawsuits, and thank goodness. Alas, in other parts of the world, that's not the case. Ryan McMacken says we find many cases of government agents suing or even prosecuting citizens for defamation. We even find wealthy and powerful private citizens suing critics, even when those critics are apparently stating what they believe to be facts. So the potential for abusing defamation law helps illustrate yet again 
the wisdom of deferring to freedom of speech as a dominating legal principle and as the philosophy behind the U.S. government's First Amendment. The presumption should be overwhelmingly in favor of the freedom to speak freely. As efforts to limit speech in the name of protecting reputations presents many opportunities for the abuse of government power. In all times and places, of course, agents of the regime prefer to silence their critics if they think they can get away with it. Historically, regimes have employed many strategies, such as blasphemy laws, or they simply outlawed criticism. But as The Economist has reported, quote, all these approaches attract international criticism, so some governments turn instead to defamation laws. Defamation is recognized almost everywhere as grounds for a civil claim in which subjects of wanton and damaging falsehoods can demand financial compensation. But when defamation is a criminal offense... Governments can go beyond fining critics who've caused demonstrable harm and imprison them simply for speaking. Though several countries have recently decriminalized defamation, many more still prosecute it zealously. And even where it can no longer lead to jail, charges can stifle criticism if courts award vast damages. End quote. Now, Ryan McMacken says, fortunately in the U.S., where defamation suits are generally difficult, it is especially difficult for government personnel or government agencies to sue for defamation. And this has been true for many decades, and this tendency towards skepticism of government-initiated suits was greatly strengthened in the American courts back in 1964 with the Sullivan ruling, in which the U.S. Supreme Court concluded, quote, for good reason, No court of last resort in this country has ever held or even suggested that prosecutions for libel on government have any place in the American system of jurisprudence. End quote. Now, in the UK, on the other hand, protections against defamation suits have been far weaker, even in regard to suits by government agencies. Only in recent decades, for example, has the UK turned heavily and explicitly toward restricting government suits against critics. And invoking the government's courts to cover damages can be used in the private sector to silence one's opponents as well. So in the UK, where defamation laws are far more extensive than in the US, we can find the cases of defamation suits used to gain commercial and political advantage. So, for example, when a plastic surgeon expressed doubts over the efficacy of a breast enhancement cream, the cream's manufacturers threatened the surgeon with legal action. In another case, Saudi businessman Khalid bin Mahfouz sued a researcher who publicly concluded that Mahfouz had given money to Al-Qaeda. Now, these kind of lawsuits would be quickly dismissed in the U.S., but in the U.K., matters are different. As NPR has reported, quote, Crooks and brigands from around the world come to the U.K. to launder their reputations, where they couldn't get exculpation in either their home country or, indeed, in the United States of America. That's according to Mark Stevens, a London lawyer who often represents media companies in these cases. In American courts, the burden of proof rests with the person who brings a claim of libel. In British courts, the author or journalist has the burden of proof and typically loses. So you've got the rich and powerful shutting down and chilling speech which is critical of them, says Stevens. End quote. Now, of course, the fact that it's very hard to win defamation lawsuits in the U.S. doesn't mean that no one ever threatens them. Even Donald Trump was notorious for threatening defamation suits against critics. That dates well back before his years as an elected official or even a presidential candidate. Trump even sued one of his own Trump University students in 2010 over that student's criticism of the school's business practices. 
So Ryan McMacken concludes, look, thanks to the U.S.'s laissez-faire attitude toward defamation, these cases were dismissed relatively quickly, although not without first causing his victims many sleepless nights and legal fees. He says one can only hope that the lawsuit brought by Corey Evans against the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department receives the contempt it deserves from the courts. After all, government agents and agencies already exercise far more power over their fellow citizens than is the case for average people. The last thing we need is for these agents of the regime to be able to threaten their critics with lawsuits for the act of merely saying things. Police officers and other government employees who don't like being subject to public criticism can always resign their positions and become ordinary private tax-paying citizens. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where you'll find links to each of the various articles and authors and guests that I have on the program. I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but uh, when I got into talk radio, one of the things that got me into the talk game, if you will, was uh, I, I. it was 1994, and there was, a, there was a so-called assault weapons ban that was being proposed at the federal level. And uh, I know this is going to shock some people, but I did not come down on the side of gun control. In fact, I was I was amazed and dismayed and, in fact, angered at the amount of uh, disingenuous reporting, manipulation of facts, and just outright lies that were told on the part of much of the mass media in order to justify a ban on so-called assault weapons that, you know, would protect the American people. And California was the state that let out. If you remember, there was a Stockton schoolyard shooting. I believe the guy's name was Patrick Purdy, who uh, killed five or six kids, all of them little uh, little Asian children who had, had Im- their families had immigrated to the U.S. from, uh, I don't know if it was Thailand or Laos or Cambodia, but it was, it was a pretty hein- heinous crime, and it was... It was used to justify something that politicians had wanted to do for a while. We've got to ban these assault weapons because he he used a legally purchased copy of an AK-47 to carry out his crime. Definitely a tragedy, but still the idea of, you know, one guy pooped his pants, therefore everyone must wear diapers. It just doesn't follow. I'm sorry. It's it's an injustice to try to approach things from that uh, that angle. So California has been one of the harshest practitioners and in actors of gun control among all the states. And it's funny, too, because they, they, they oh, a lot of you gun owners, you don't have to worry about this. If you have this gun, you're fine, you know. It's not like we're going to try and take it from you. And then you fast forward a few years. Okay, well, we are going to make you register this. And now we are telling you, now that we know that you have it, you need to turn it in or get it out of state. Yeah, everything they said they wouldn't do, they did. Which, you know, there's a good lesson in that if you're paying attention. But now, a federal judge, after 32 years, has just overturned California's so-called assault weapons ban. The judge is actually calling the policy a failed experiment that violates the individual right to keep and bear arms. 
And it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I, you know, I don't hold out hope that, well, if just enough judges would do this, you know, we could, we could uh, get this country back on track. But this is a pretty bold move. And California, I mean, the Governor Newsom right now is just freaking out. He calls it a direct threat to the public safety and the lives of innocent Californians. Now, interestingly enough, of course, uh, if, if these really were so dangerous, these weapons of war, they have only one purpose, and that is killing innocent people. If that's the case, it's, it'd be curious to know, why does California carve out exemptions for, say, its police officers, its law enforcement agencies, to have not only, you know, so-called assault weapons, but like legit assault rifles with select fire, meaning they could be fired fully automatic. Yeah. One set of rules for thee and another for me uh, that's uh, that's a good sign you're dealing with tyranny at some level. But U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law. He has stayed it for 30 days. But uh, the next couple of weeks could be pretty interesting. This is an article from the South China Morning Post, and sometimes it's good to go outside of the U.S. to get a little more objective view on this. In other words, a little more nuanced view. Something about uh, American mass media is, uh, how can I put this nicely? Very slanted. Yeah, <laughs> that'll work. There's a certain narrative that, that American media sources prefer, and by gosh, you do not stray from that narrative. But other places, you know, in South China Morning Post, I think gives a fairly even-handed treatment of this story. They report a federal judge has overturned California's three-decade-old ban on assault weapons, calling it a failed experiment that violates people's constitutional right to bear arms. U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez of San Diego ruled last Friday the state's definition of illegal military-style rifles unlawfully deprives law-abiding Californians of weapons commonly allowed in most other states and by the Supreme Court. Benitez said under no level of heightened scrutiny can the law survive. And he issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law, but stated for 30 days to give Attorney General Bob Bonta time to appeal. California Governor Gavin Newsom condemned the decision, calling it a direct threat to public safety and the lives of innocent Californians, period. Which translated means, oh my gosh, the people could have the same kinds of firearms that our police have or that that, uh, they, they could actually have parity of force with whatever I'm able to muster. Yeah, that's what scares him. The people don't uh, don't have those neutered, uh, you know, pea shooters that uh, the king would prefer they have, but instead are carrying the same kind of modern muskets that the king's troops are carrying. Gee, I wonder if there's a, if there's a precedent for this. I wonder if there were, were some kind of, uh, I don't know, constitutional amendment, for instance, that could explain why such a thing would be necessary, you know, to the security of a free state. Huh. Okay, sarcasm off. In his 94-page ruling, the judge spoke favorably of modern weapons, saying they were overwhelmingly used for legal reasons. And by the way, he's right. The number of people who die in any given year from rifle fire of any kind, and I'm talking people who are, are, you know, either justifiably killed or unjustifiably murdered by rifles, including so-called assault rifles, still is less than the number of people who die because of other people's fists or feet. 
Yeah, it's it's a solution looking for a problem. And the solution is we need power and we need a monopoly on force and we need to find a way to keep the citizenry from having parity of force. The judge said in his ruling's introduction, like the Swiss Army knife, a popular the popular AR-15 rifle is a perfect combination of home defense weapon and homeland defense weapon. Or homeland defense equipment equipment rather. Good for home and battle. Now, that comparison completely undermines the credibility of this decision and is a slap in the face to families who's lost loved ones to this weapon, says Gavin Newsom, as if the AR-15 just on its own jumps in the car, drives out, and starts shooting people. Newsom said, we're not backing down from this fight. We'll continue pushing for what he calls common sense gun laws that will save lives. Bonta called the ruling flawed and said it will be appealed. California first restricted assault weapons in 1989 with multiple updates to the law since. Assault weapons, as defined by the law, are more dangerous than other weapons. Now, keep in mind the qualifier, as defined by the law, not in reality. And the law says, or lawmakers claim they are disproportionately used in crimes, mass shootings, and against law enforcement with more resulting casualties. That's according to the state's attorney general's office. Barring them furthers the state's important public safety interests. Remember we talked yesterday about how uh, for the for the public safety or the public health? Okay, this is one of those things where we're going to throw a nebulous phrase out there and assure you that whatever's going on is okay because we're doing this in the interest of the public. This is in the interest of the people in power. And I'm going to be really blunt here for a minute, so, you know, brace yourself. This This may rub some people the wrong way. Why do people like Governor Newsom, why do California's Attorney General and others in power fear the idea of an AR-15 in the hands of a law-abiding citizen? And by that I mean a a peaceful, rather productive member of society. They fear that because their policies and their desires to rule the people, to dictate to them, you will do this, you will do that, are threatened by the possibility of them pushing the people into a corner far enough that the people say, enough. And they put their foot down, and when that happens, what does the state have at its disposal to force its will to make sure that the people do dang well what they're told? Yeah, they're going to send men with guns and badges to enforce it. If the people can negate that force or create parity of force and resist with the best tools for the job, And by the way, the AR-15 is a great tool for preserving freedom, for preserving innocent life against lethal aggression, whether it is by an average criminal or by someone wearing a state-issued costume. That's what politicians fear. Even more than that, they fear the idea that if, if they push the people hard enough, if they try to lock it down and be tyrannical enough, the people may eventually reach the point where they have no choice but to remove that elected official, from office. And these elected officials are terrified that one day they're going to face one of these things as they are marching their way towards a a noose because they were doing things that, uh, you know, Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife were doing. That's an ugly thing to consider. And I don't mention it lightly. It's certainly not a first resort, but firearms like the AR-15 in the hands of the people 
as a last resort against government tyranny, you better believe they are a viable check on government power. Otherwise, Gavin Newsom wouldn't be quaking in his shorts. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I admit, you know, that last segment, ooh, that ended on kind of a, kind of a stark note. But I got to tell you, this is one of those issues that uh, if you want to talk about the line in the sand, people wonder, well, you know, what was it that pushed the, uh, the, the colonies to, to not just say, hey, we're going to declare our independence and go our own way, not just to, to throw tea in the harbor, not just to tar and feather the king's tax collectors when they got a little too heavy handed, but to actually stand up and say, no, we will fight. As happened on the morning of April 19th, 1775 at Concord and Lexington. Come on, you know the answer here. The king and his generals sent troops to confiscate the arms, the, the ammo and the muskets from the colonials. They were trying to disarm the people. And when that happened, the people realized, look, if we allow this to take place, we are going to be utterly reduced to servitude. We're going to be utterly, utterly reduced to despotism. And so they did what uh, what needed to be done, and it's it's sad, it's tragic, it's unfortunate, but it was necessary. They shot those redcoats and fought them. Nobody wants to think anything like that would ever be possible in our day, and I I certainly don't look at the possibility of something like that happening and think, oh, that would be that'd be great. I'm not one of those guys who thinks, yeah, it's a good thing to water the tree of liberty, as Jefferson explained with the blood of tyrants and patriots. But I believe that having the ability to stop that uh, unlawful, as opposed to just legal, government force is a necessity. And I know the Biden administration right now is working very hard to create registration and confiscation schemes. You're going to see more and more calls for, we've got to disarm the American people. We've got to do it. It's just, it just no more talk. It just has to be done. My friend, that is the line in the sand. That is, uh, that is a line that uh, once someone in government is foolish enough to cross it, they're going to reopen a can of worms that uh, was uh, last opened back in April of 1775. And it's going to be ugly. Wouldn't we be wise to understand this and for them to back off while they have a chance to back off rather than push this to where violent conflict is the only way out? Nobody I know is, is eager for, for violence. But neither are we eager to be reduced to essentially slaves, with government having an absolute and unchallengeable monopoly on force. By the way, if you're going to say, well, Brian, they've got uh, stealth bombers, they've got atom bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that and how, how we use that to win in uh, Iraq and how we use that to win in Afghanistan, how we use that to win in uh, Vietnam and various other places. Go ahead and tell me all about it. What? Oh, those, those countries are still uh, doing their own thing? And, 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 and the, the, what was an occupation either is ending or has ended? Yeah. You don't own a country. You don't control a country. 
until you absolutely control every inch of that land. And there just aren't enough troops, there aren't enough police to go out there and to stand and hold that land against a civilian population that's capable of negating that kind of force on an individual level. Sorry, this is this is this is dark stuff. I don't even like to I don't like to talk about it, but I, I, I speak it because I believe it is the truth and I think it's something that we need to have clear in our heads. There's a time when it's okay to fight back. And I don't know how close or how far we are from, from that, but I know people are pushing us towards a situation where that is going to be the kind of decision placed on us. That's something you probably want to have uh, sorted out ahead of time. It stems not from a desire to dominate either, and I hope that's clear. When I shared Paul Rosenberg's uh, commentaries about you know the um, Judeo-Christian principles, it was absolutely justifiable for God's people to stand up and throw off their oppressors. But they weren't to go out and to dominate and to conquer for the sake of having dominion over other people. They were just to secure their freedom. Speaking of which, I have an article here from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research, The Ancient Desire for Freedom. This is a really useful read in that it walks you through historically how this isn't just, you know, I mean, some people, you know, politicians especially would like to portray it as well. You know, freedom's just a passing fad and it's a selfish thing. And, you know, there are plenty of would-be rulers who want us to believe that. But that ancient desire for freedom among humankind has been around for a long time. And the, the efforts of the people who came before us have given us very solid ground to stand on if we understand it. Ethan Yang says, we live in an age when we are the beneficiaries of thousands of years worth of scholarly thought on the value of a free and open society. In the year 2021, we have the privilege of living in a world where we can now show empirically that a free society outperforms all other systems that have been tried. Nobody can deny that a government that protects private property, free exchange, and basic civil liberties is one that can facilitate the most prosperity for most people. There's a powerful correlation between protecting, e- protecting economic freedom and economic growth. And the safest form of government is a limited government with checks and balances through an enforced constitution, co-equal branches of power, and dispersed decision-making rights. In particular, Eleanor, Os- Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in 2009 for outlining the superiority of a polycentric style of government with dispersed and competing centers of power. But he says it's also become fashionable, especially with the critical theorists of the Marxist and intersectional Marxist persuasion, to paint the institutions of liberty as recent innovations to preserve racism and power. Some respected historians, for example, would argue that the ideas put forth by the great 20th century American economist and political scientist James Buchanan were just a conspiracy to preserve racism. Critical race theorists in the legal profession would argue that important institutions like the Constitution and the free speech it protects are mostly in place to uphold racial hierarchy. Now, he says, although there's no doubt that bad actors have done bad things in the name of liberty to advance such wretched goals, to suggest that the institutions of liberty, such as free markets or limited government, exist primarily for such ends, would be historically ignorant. Ethan Yang says the desire for freedom and the importance of the institutions that enable human flourishing in a free society Go back as far as history can recount. 
And this is where he takes us on a little bit of a journey through history from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia rather, to 21st century America. It's a, it's a very well thought out timeline of how our understanding of freedom and the principles and practices of freedom have developed. In fact, he has a quote here from ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, who articulated a refutation of authoritarian government years ago. One of his famous lines was, the more laws and restrictions there are, the poorer people become. The more rules and regulations, the more robbers and thieves. And Ethan Yang says, thousands of years before the tenure of any mainstream economist or legal theorist, People like Laozi were already hinting that systems that enable a free society may be the most optimal forms of government. So the key takeaway from this article is, today there is certainly a dangerous revisionist campaign led by liberty skeptics attempting to paint the institutions of freedom as just recent innovations to entrench systems of hierarchy and racism. However, the ideas of a free society are ones that truly date back to antiquity although they're only seeing widespread implementation in the modern era. He says it goes without saying that their application is what led to modernity in the first place. From the ancient epic of Gilgamesh to the cutting-edge work of today's scholars, liberty has shown itself to always be unfinished business. Every generation has stories of struggle and wisdom to share on the maintenance of a free and open society, humanity's greatest innovation. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Again, this is from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. Allow me to explain why this has relevance to you and me. That line he has in there about how the, the liberty has shown itself to always be unfinished business. Most of us, and I'm including myself in this, have pretty much been able to coast for the better part of our lives on the liberty that was purchased by those who came before us. Whether you go back to the American Revolution, you uh, look through American history, World War II, people have done heavy lifting along the way because liberty does not perpetuate itself. It is only found among people who understand its principles and practices and who live up to those principles and practices. And frankly, throughout human history, there haven't been that many people capable of keeping it, even if they were able to achieve it. But somebody has to do the heavy lifting in order to pass that torch along to the next generation. And I don't mean to to sound intimidating when I say this, but for you and me, it's our turn to start lifting. And this is something that each of us needs to be a part of. I suspect you already are. You wouldn't likely be listening to this broadcast. This is The Brian Hyde Show.